Hello, this is Christian Espana Schmidt and you are welcome to my podcast, The Denver Medical Files. I'm a physician, a hospitalist, faculty of the Department of Medicine and Point of Care Ultrasound Associate Director at Denver Hospital. This podcast is dedicated to all the internal medicine community and you are very welcome to here. Today in my podcast, we're going to talk about a tweet I found some time ago. This tweet stated that the word pulses should be banned from medical education. Today, the Twitter states that we have better tools at evaluating patients, such as point-of-care ultrasound. Therefore, all the pulses should be banned from medicine. Now, the debate was explicitly about pulses paradoxes, one of the main components for the diagnosis of cardiac tamponade. So, should we, in the era of point-of-care ultrasound, continue to teach this medical science, or and uh, should this be thrown in the garbage? Welcome to the Danbury Medical Files, a production by Christian Espana Schmidt. MD. And it's essential to understand that pulses paradoxes first is not just uh, the only pulses that we we study on a counter. So the study of the pulse, it's um, it's it's long. It we we know about the pulse for th- thousands of years. Galen thought that the pulse was the breath of the arteries and veins, and the arteries themselves pulsated. It was actually thought that the arteries had a systole and a diastole. Also, it was believed that blood was created in the lungs and sent to the arteries. It was not until 1628 when William Harvey published the Motocordis for short, a book that explained the circulation of blood, the motion of heart, and the function of the heart valves. It is interesting that William Harvey studied in Padua, Italy. He was at the medical school with Euronymous Fabricius, and while he was in Padua, Fabricius was perfecting his knowledge about the valves of the veins. During that time, he rediscovered the description of Vesalius about the heart's valves. And at the beginning, it was thought that the valves were to prevent overdestation of the venous flow of the heart. Still, Harvey pointed out that the valves were there to prevent reflux during the heart, systole, and diastole. And this determined the blood flow and pulse. William Harvey graduated from Padua in 1602, and at the same year, he went to England. He received there the degree of Doctor of Medicine in Cambridge. The motto Corvidis was presented in 1628 in Latin and finally translated to English 200 years later. So thanks to that, we know where the poles come from and the physiology of the heart. Now, it is very important to remember that pulses paradoxes is not the only pulses that we can study or encounter. 
I'm just going to mention a few, but there are many other pulses that we can encounter and study. The first one I want to point out is permanently slow pulse that was first described by William Stokes and is associated to heart block. Then William Stokes to describe a weak, rapid, irregular, and tangling pulse. Um, this later on, James McKenzie found out that it was associated to atrial fibrillation and we call it irregular irregular or pulses irregularis irregularis. Also, we have pulses parvus et tardus or late and shallow and this pulse is usually associated with aortic stenosis. With auscultation and with the power of technology, we can figure out aortic stenosis and the presence of this pulse is usually associated with severe aortic stenosis. Also, capillary and venous pulse by King K in aortic insufficiency. Pulsus bigeminus that is usually associated to PVCs. So there is a lot of pulses that we still can learn uh, to feel. Of course, make sure that the pulses are symmetric. And this is, is very important because the cost to make a physical examination and determine the pulses in a patient is actually cheap. It's like not finding pulses or the disease without, without pulses, such as in Takayasu, that can give gives us already a good clue of what is going on inside the patient. Also, a very asymmetric pulse in between uh, extremities can tell us that the patient has aortic quartation. So it is very important to remember that pulsus paradoxus is not the only pulse. Well, now pulsus paradoxus is not exclusive of pericardial effusion and not exclusive of cardiac tamponade. But when one can figure out that someone has pericardial effusion, the presence of pulsus paradoxus usually will be a very good indicator of tamponade. Now, diagnosing pericardial effusion it's really difficult clinically. We need imaging. The first time um, a pericardial effusion is described is by Lenick, and um, this was in a patient who he found to have very distant heart sounds. He percuted the patient, the percussion of the patient, uh, chest was abnormal, and later on the patient died. Um, of course, he found a large amount of fluid in, in the pericardium of this patient, so we don't want to be there. It is very important that there is no study regarding the evaluation of pulses between the, the point of care ultrasound and the, and, and the clinician. However, there are studies where point of care ultrasound has outperformed auscultation. One study by Cabal et al. demonstrated that first years uh, medical students with training in cardiac ultrasound were able to identify valvular disease better than a cardiologist alone with a stethoscope. Now, when 
the cardiologist perform the point of care ultrasound after auscultation of the patient, he currently identified the cardiac vascular disease, valvular disease about 100%. So it was a 65 versus 100%. So it's very important that point of care ultrasound is here probably to enhance uh, our senses for now. And we are still not at the point of throwing our physical examination away. There is no way that we can figure out an early pericardial effusion without the use of imaging and without the, with the use of point-of-care ultrasound. In ultrasound, we can actually see the physiology of the patient in real time. Now, how you measure pulses paradoxes? What is pulses paradoxes? So, for that, I have a guest, a special guest. This is Dr. Ferdinand Bisco, one of my teachers and professors of cardiology. Dr. Bisco today is the chief emeritus of the section of cardiology at Metropolitan Hospital Center in New York City. He obtained his medical degree from University of Padua in Italy, the same university that gave the degree of medicine to William Harvey and Euronymous Fabricius. He completed his medical residency at the Catholic Medical Center of Brooklyn and Queens General Hospital, as well his cardiology fellowship at Nassau County in Medical Center. He's a fellow of the American College of Physicians and the American College of Cardiology. He worked in the Fellowship of Cardiology at Bronx, Lebanon. Also, he was the Program Director of Fellowship at St. Vincent Catholic Medical Center and was the Chief of the Section of Cardiology at Metropolitan Center, where he is again the Director Emeritus of Cardiology. He is also the author of the book Growing Up Italian-American. This phone interview was recorded in February. Welcome, Dr. Visco, to the podcast, The Denver Medical Files. I'm very happy to have you here. And today I would like you to tell us how to obtain the pulses paradoxes in cardiac tamponade. Your teachings and how to obtain pulses paradoxes is probably the one of the most um, elegant explanations I have in, in my life, and I'm really happy to have you here. And welcome, Dr. Visco. Thank you very much, Christian. I'm happy that you are doing things like this. I'm very proud of you and your accomplishments. Um, and thank you for inviting me to talk about pulses paradoxes. As, as you know, uh, you know, most people know what pulses paradoxes is. They know that it's uh, greater than 10 millimeter drop and blood pressure on inspiration, and it's a sign of tamponade. And they also know that uh, up to 10 millimeters is normal. So uh, the way I usually begin this lecture for the fellows and residents is I ask them uh, if they know how to take pulses paradoxes. And how it goes. And invariably, they uh, give me all kinds of uh, different methods, all of which are not correct. Some of the residents want to uh, take a deep, have the patient take a deep breath, take the blood pressure, have the patient expire, then take another blood pressure and compare the two uh, measurements. 
Uh, sometimes I even offer first-year fellows to advance them to second year if they really know how to do it. And invariably, uh, first-year fellow, even first-year fellows don't know how to do it. So, and it's very important to do this because this uh, pericardial tamponade is a clinical diagnosis. As you know, uh, clinically, uh, it's uh, characterized by a patient with a low blood pressure, small pulse pressure, distended neck veins, and pulses paradoxical. And uh, basically, uh, you know, we have echo and, and uh, Doppler, echo Doppler, and so forth. But that is forward danger. The, the main advantage of echo is to determine whether or not the patient has pericardial effusion. And uh, once you've done that, there's other ways of trying to get some hemodynamic data, like looking at the IVC to see if it's dilated, which is the equivalent of an elevated uh, central venous pressure. And uh, also to look at uh, right atrial systolic collapse and right ventricular diastolic collapse, and also to evaluate the height of the E-wave with respiration, variation in E-wave. Being greater than 25% is kind of a sign for tamponade. But it's difficult because the patient is uh, usually an extremist in, in pericardial tamponade and is jumping all around, uh, and sometimes the transducer move shifts positions, and so it's fraught with danger. And even timing the right atrium and the right ventricle is difficult, and right atrial collapse is not pathognomonic of tamponade. It's a sign that may indicate it. Right ventricular collapse in diastole is, but that is very rarely seen. The only other finding for tamponade, which we have clinically, is really patients who have uh, <clears throat> who have a electrical alternate. Uh, basically, patients who have, you know, uh, total electrical alternate. So a PQRST, uh, large and then small, and large and small, like that. So, uh, and that, that is a, a pretty good sign, but that's rarely seen. Yeah. So moving on to the clinical diagnosis, we want to make sure our patient has distended neck pain. Cusmos sign is usually not seen, which is usually a more distension of the neck veins on inspiration, that's seen in constrictive pericarditis, uh, not usually seen in tamponade. So the way we take the we make the diagnosis of uh, pulses paradoxicus is to actually use a blood pressure machine, which actually has to be of pretty good quality, a manual blood pressure machine that holds air, doesn't have that, it cannot leak. And basically, we put the blood pressure cuff on, and we take the uh, feel the patient's pulse. And we inflate the cuff until we no longer feel the pulse. And so we know that that systolic blood pressure is above that. The reason we have to do that manually first is because there's a phenomenon called the escultatory gap, which can interfere with the diagnosis of pulses paradox. We will always want to make sure that we're above the systolic pressure when we begin. So once we've established that blood pressure, whatever it is, by palpation, we then repeat the process listening over the brachial artery with a stethoscope. And we inflate the uh, cuff and press, increase the pressure above that systolic pressure that we determined manually. And then we listen. And now we slowly let air out until we hear the first Karakov sound. And we're going to hear something like this. So, 
Then we slowly let the air out until we hear Karakov sounds all the time. So the first, when we hear the first Karakov sign and the sound and the sign goes away, that's the first number. And then we, when we hear sounds all the time, that's the second number. And the difference between those two numbers is the pulse is paradoxical. Now we want the patient to breathe normally uh, during this, while we're doing this. Not to take, take a deep breath in, take a deep breath out and so forth. So we need to have the patient breathing normally. And you'll notice that when you slowly let the air out and hear the first Karakov sound, dup, 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 that you will find that the sounds go away on inspiration and come back on expiration. That's because on inspiration, you're increasing the venous return, and the heart, even though it has four chambers, is really encased in one pericardial sac. So as the right heart fills up, uh, increasing has increased filling because of inspiration, the left side of the heart has less filling, and that's why the blood pressure falls on inspiration. That is the only way to determine pulses paradoxes. So again, it's a clinical finding, it's very important to do it correctly. The other thing is to note that the most common cause of pulses paradoxes is not tamponade. Actually, it is asthma. Patients severe asthma has a pulses paradoxes. And some patients on a respirator will have pulses paradoxes. So you have to be, those are the caveats when you're uh, taking the uh, pulses paradoxes. So I don't know if that that, that uh, explains it. Um, do you have any questions, Christian, or you want to talk about anything else? Uh, wow, I, I think this is this is exactly what I want to hear, um, and uh, this is going to be great for my residents who are always asking how to perform the the test, and I usually ask them. But it's it's it's, it's nice to hear from from the the, the person that teach you. And or taught you at some point, and um, yeah, uh, it will be great to know um, a little bit more what uh, inspired you to to start your book. I really want to hear that one. Well, you know, I I went to medical school in Italy, uh, and uh, so I uh, know what it feels like to be in a foreign country and to learn medicine. So I had to learn medicine in Italian. I, although I'm of Italian origin, I didn't speak Italian when I went there. Uh, I enjoyed being in Italy because I, after all, I was in Europe and I had a, a real productive reason to be there. So I enjoyed going to medical school in Italy. And then when I came back to America, I did an internship. Uh, and, uh, and now I was thrown in with a lot of people from different countries, you know, Indians and, and, and the Filipinos and people like that. And in fact, you know, they actually had more experience with uh, American medicine than I did. So I felt a little bit, uh, you know, uh, troubled, uh, you know, and so I decided to, uh, and this is just a story and for the residents, you know, I decided that I was going to make myself an expert in something, anything. 
And I did. I read every book I could on EKGs and became an expert about EKGs. And I could diagnose something called an FLE, which we used to call flippantly a funny-looking EKG, FLE. And I knew more about EKGs than most attendees. This, of course, uh, improved my self-esteem. And from there on, uh, you know, I went on to study cardiology and so forth. So the reason I wrote the book was really because I wanted uh, my my children to know more about their culture. And, uh, you know, my grandparents came from Italy around the turn of the century in the 1900s. They went to Ellis Island and, uh, you know, they were, had to suffer much in the way of uh, anti-Italian prejudice. And they uh, decided really that the best way to handle prejudice was to become educated. Because uh, it, my grandfather said, if you are educated and you become a professional, especially if you become a doctor, people will have to come to you for help. And in fact, uh, 21 people in my family are physicians. And all they all owe uh, their profession, really, their drive to become a doctor to my grandfather, who insisted that his children become professional. And I wanted uh, to write about that. I wanted all to include Italian recipes, uh, you know, and uh, traditions and so forth. And the book has actually taken off and is a big hit in the Italian-American community. It's on Amazon and selling pretty good. It's called Growing Up Italian-American, The Memoirs of Ferdinand Visco and the Stories of Two Immigrant Italian Families. And I have it here in my house and I really enjoyed uh, reading it. I really recommend it. And Thank you, Dr. Visco, uh, for, for your you. time. Thank you for the lesson. Thank you for telling us about your book. And uh, thank you for participating in this uh, project. I appreciate it really much. Very good. Well, good luck, Christian. I think you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work, and I'm very, very proud of you. Thank you, Dr. Visco. And with this interview, I want to say thank you for hearing the Denver Medical Files. Please like it, subscribe, and follow on Twitter. Your comments are welcome. Thank you very much. This was the Denver Medical File. Please follow us on Twitter and leave us a comment and a like. And thank you very much for being here. Till next time.